Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. We are beings of light. And I'm not talking metaphysically here, but biophysically. Our human body emits and communicates with biophotons. These are electromagnetic waves of light. And they are fundamental to our vital functions. We can't see biophotons with the naked eye, but they can be measured with special tools. The lack of natural sunlight and the overexposure to junk light, the artificial light that have become so ubiquitous in our lives, can have devastating effects on our health. My guest today is Matt Maruka. He is the founder of Raw Optics, making science-based blue light protection glasses preferred by leading health experts. Matt teaches about how sunlight is essential for optimal health and how the indoor technology-based lifestyle is responsible for the epidemic of chronic disease. He's also the creator of The Light Diet, a diet that directly addresses the root of the modern chronic disease epidemic and mitochondrial dysfunction. Ariana Summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Matt, thank you for being my guest today. I really am very excited to talk to you about all things light. Thank you, Arian. I'm very glad to be on the show as well. I have been reading up about you and you are likely one of the world's youngest biohackers. I learned that you actually learned about optimizing health while you were in high school. What inspired you so early in life to become the best version of yourself? It was mostly just that I was having some challenges with my health, with gut issues, with allergies, with headaches. And I really had surrendered for a while that I couldn't do anything about these thinking they were all genetic. But then at a certain point, when I started having some acne breakouts and some things like this that aesthetically, I really wasn't happy about being a vain high schooler. I started just researching online how I might be able to impact that. And I came across this concept of healthier diets and specifically the concept of epigenetics and basically how we could modify our genes within this lifetime, within one lifetime and within even minutes and days and, and moments to express different genes and have different health basically and a different level of life. And so I started trying all sorts of different diets to see what I could do to improve my health. But the different things I tried didn't really give the results that I fully believed were possible. And it led me to basically light. But generally, the reason I was interested was just my own challenges at the time. And I find it really interesting. You say you're speaking about skin issues. And of course, that can something that can affect us psychologically. 
profoundly, especially when we're young and just finding our way, becoming adults. Something else that's interesting about skin issues is that they're really intimately tied to our general health and well-being. And I actually used to suffer from acne myself when I was quite young. And I now know that this is often an indicator that there's some systemic inflammation, even a low-grade inflammation that's going on in our bodies. Often it's also related to our gut health. And I've learned today when my skin shows me a reaction to either the lifestyle I have in the moment, if there's a lot of stress or certain foods that I'm eating, to immediately listen to it and take it as an alarm clock. I love that you took your health in your own hands. And what you just said is something I repeat on this podcast often as well. We're not tied to the genetic cards we've been dealt or what life throws at us. Epigenetics teaches us that we can influence our environment and that thus can influence the genetic expression, what happens in our body. You speak a lot about optimizing circadian rhythm and, of course, mitochondria. So for the listeners in the audience who are not that well acquainted with this idea, this concept, can you talk about mitochondria to us? How do they run our cells? And why would we die if they wouldn't be doing their job? Yeah, so mitochondria are basically the engines of complex life. So life began, as the best evidence shows, in these alkaline hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the oceans several billions of years ago. And basically the molten energy within the earth was causing this hot alkaline fluid to seep through these vents into the ocean where it mixed with relatively acidic relative to this alkaline fluid with ocean water. And Basically, this gradient in, it's called a proton gradient, the gradient in the amount of protons dissolved in these liquids, basically was available energy to cultivate, trigger, and stimulate reactions by basically chemical reactions in these vents. And there's billions of tiny little pores in these vents. And over time, these reactions occurred and these sort of proto cells started to form based on this energy gradient. And over time, as things do in nature, when the environment is favoring it, when there's energy present, reactions occur in certain directions as is physically favorable. And so these reactions, these protocells that started, basically started to go further and further in uh, we would consider evolutionary terms to be ultimately self-sustaining and not dependent just on the reactions that were occurring in these vents, but they became able to move outwards and start to use other basically molecules for producing energy or basically continuing this reaction of life that was occurring. And so all life was limited for the first approximately two and a half billion years out of 4 billion years as estimated of, of evolution. And we were just limited as these small cells, single celled organisms, bacteria and archaea. And the part of the reason for this is that life uses membranes and potentials on different side of membranes to generate energy. And so with bacteria, there's only so much membrane volume or membrane, I should say space to the volume of the cells where the cells could, they could get a little bit bigger and have more volume, but basically the energy that's produced on these membranes is required to 
sustain the volume of the things occurring within the cell. Life was limited in its size for a really long time based on this constraint of not being able to have more membrane to gen more membrane area to generate energy. And so life was really small. And basically at one point, what happened was there was this merger of these two different microorganisms on earth at the time. One was what's called an archaeobacteria and one was what's called an oxidative cyanobacteria. And basically the oxidative cyanobacteria, which is now mitochondria, was really good at generating energy and effective and efficient at generating energy using oxygen. And the other was basically specialized in structure and function. So when these two organisms merged, one basically took over all the roles of energy production and the other took over structure and function. It's if one person in a business were doing everything for the business and finally had an opportunity to hire a sales team, they could focus on the administrative items, for example, and then all of a sudden have a sales team and they could grow their sales team bigger and bigger. And this is what life did with these mitochondria. So what happened is the host cell, which was the archaeobacteria, basically you know, got to a place where it could have up to a thousand mitochondria inside of it working for it in a sense. And this is what our cells have today. So each human cell or eukaryotic cell, same with plants, same with fungi as well, have all, all complex life. Basically, that's more than a single celled bacteria or archaea, which is again, plants, animals, and, and fungi. All of these cells have approximately you know, hundreds to thousands of mitochondria per cell. And what happened is there's this massive energy savings that was allowed by this merger because no longer did all of these bacteria, these energy producers have to spend all of their energy. Because if you think about it, the ones that in my analogy of the business owner and the sales team, the ones that were the salespeople at one point when they were their own individual organisms, they were each effectively running their own business. So they didn't just have to go out and make sales, AKA produce energy as per this analogy. They also had to run their own entire business, all the administrative tasks, all the different functions. So they basically got to say, Hey, I'm not doing any of this anymore. We're giving this all to the boss and there's just one boss. And so the amount of energy savings was literally like a thousand fold for each of these individual organisms. And so the reason it's so beneficial is that the host cell basically was able to keep all of this extra energy that's produced. And then the mitochondria, these salespeople, basically these energy producers, they get to be provided with nutrition, basically safety, a place to be, and all they have to do is do what they do best, which is make energy. So this simple merger of these two organisms basically allowed for all complex life that we know today. And it's the only time that's documented and aware of an evolutionary history where two simple organisms merged. And that again, has led to all complex life, including humans. So the reason mitochondria are so important is because they are literally the as I said, from the beginning, the engines of life that allow allowed for all complex life to come to reality on earth and allow for our life to exist. So if mitochondria don't function at their highest level, 
then we're going to start having problems. If they don't function at all, then of course we die instantly. That's what the poison cyanide that people would wear on their neck in a capsule during wars, for example, in case they were taken hostage or prisoner, they could bite cyanide and die within seconds because it basically blocks the flow of energy in the mitochondria. So that's why it's so poisonous. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's what mitochondria are. Yeah. And that's why it's relevant. But imagine if you don't take cyanide, but if you're, for example, constantly exposed to blue light at night, which disrupts our body's natural production of melatonin, which is a repair molecule for the mitochondria, then essentially these engines that make up a large portion of who we are. In fact, I, I only learned this uh, somewhat recently, actually, but based on some evidence, our bodies are about 30% mitochondria by weight because wow. they make up the majority, they make up actually a large portion of the volume of every single cell. And it goes back to this point I brought up about um, the ratio of surfaces to volume of a cell was limited when we were bacteria. But what we basically did with mitochondria is we packed a bunch of extra membranes inside of our cells. So if you look at a cell, it's full of membranes, a lot of which are mitochondria. And these membranes, again, because this is where we generate energy as living organisms, that's how we were able to basically overcome this constraint of the of being these tiny cells is by packing a lot more membrane space, aka energy generating potential inside of the cell. And so life was basically able to expand to gargantuan proportions compared to where it was before. Think the difference between a bacteria that lives on the computer or, or phone that you're holding right now or, or that anyone's looking at, and then the a Tyrannosaurus Rex. That's a pretty significant million-fold difference in size, and that's basically yeah. what was allowed by this merger. So that's what mitochondria are at a very thorough explanation, and that's why they're so relevant for our well-being because if they work well, we work well because they are us. We are them. And if they don't work well, then we're sick. We have diseases and illnesses. Outstanding, Matt. I love how you explained this basically from the beginning of complex life. Also, your analogy that makes a very complex process easy to understand. Yes, and and I, you mentioned blue light. Of course, I do want to delve into that with you. When we look at nature, every species has a lifestyle that's dictated by their environment and they're in harmony with their environment, ideally. But if you look at us humans, we have vastly changed our environment and also in a sense, really disconnected from what we need to truly nourish our bodies and have them function optimally. You explained what mitochondria are, why they're so important. And you talked about blue light, which is something I want to get into very shortly. I think it's important before that, that we actually talk about the connection between sunlight and mitochondria and how light affects our body and health in every single way. Can you give us the lowdown on that, please, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. So it's my understanding that as life moved away from the, and this is really what the research indicates as well, of course, but as life moved away from the vents at the bottom of the oceans and which was, there was a, a form of energy there that was largely powering life. There was these chemical reactions occurring that led to these initial cells, but the driving force for the energy that was there was light energy because all, not all energy, but, but energy oftentimes is found in our universe as light. It's one of the more common forms of energy. There's also vibrational energy, which is 
arguably more foundational and primordial to light energy, like in the, uh, for example, accounts of creation, whether they're biblical or, or Hindu or anything, they typically start with something that they liken more to sound than light energy, even though it really right. isn't sound because sound implies sound requires matter that's moving. So it really isn't sound, it's more vibration and so or frequency and, and light is derived from this later on. So light isn't fully primordial, but it's very close. But within our universe and with our earth and solar system, light is one of the primary forms and sources of energy. So anyhow, this energy was infrared. This is the heat energy from the molten magma flowing within the earth, which was causing, of course, this hot water to flow out of these vents and so on. So as life moves to the surface of the oceans and eventually as it becomes complex, starts to colonize the surfaces of land, we would naturally, as these organisms, which are in a sense opportunistic, again, it's I, I almost like to think of life and I use the term reaction sometimes more than organism, because even though we are organisms, re reaction sometimes helps to put it in a mental context where it's like we are these ongoing reactions that are effectively doing catalyzing the reaction of different molecules on earth for or atoms and molecules for energy. Anyhow, so we would use the energy we have available, if there was something that was like a free source of energy to help that was just there, we would naturally take advantage of it in the same way that, for example, someone who is a poor person or, or someone who needs, needs money walks down the street and then there's basically free money, they're going to take it. So that is what happened when we began to be exposed to sunlight. You know, evolutionarily, light from the sun could be utilized to power different reactions as well. And we evolved membranes that could handle ultraviolet light and, and blue light and violet light, which are much higher energy and could be, of course, more um, degrading and damaging and harmful to living organisms. But we developed the ability to have these systems and so on to actually take that light energy and utilize it and typically slowing it down to infrared light, which is again, more generally the energy currency that our cells typically function on red and infrared light, because that's where we began. Bacteria are still typically actually killed by ultraviolet light. And this is why places that are dark and damp will often grow more bacteria and so on. Whereas places with lots of sunlight, because it kills these bacteria, they're not equipped for it essentially. So complex life evolved an ability to handle this, some complex life, plants, of course, mammals, of course, other reptiles and so on. Of course, they're like, they're dependent on sunlight because they're cold blooded. So in our, in our cells, another interesting fun fact is that cold blooded and warm blooded basically means organisms that don't have uncoupling proteins in their mitochondria which enable them to basically burn their own fat stores and generate heat or animals that do again, cold blooded means they can't warm themselves up. So cold blooded animals like AKA reptiles, dinosaurs, crocodiles, iguanas, lizards, and so on, they require light from the sun in order to maintain the temperature in the body that's required for all the reactions to be able to proceed as they are designed. If they don't have that light energy for a sustained period of time, they'll go extinct, 
which is what happened with the dinosaurs when the asteroid struck the earth that caused everything to basically be a cloud of ash for potentially hundreds of years. And this is why the dinosaurs went extinct because there was not enough light energy basically reaching the earth in enough proportions. And this is also why today there are still some reptiles and they are basically confined all within the tropics. So if you look and see alligators, iguanas, crocodiles, they basically aren't any further north than southern Georgia or northern Florida and same in other parts of the world. So that's just a fun fact because they require... They require this constant strong source of sunlight for their functioning. On the other hand, warm-blooded animals like mammals, like humans included, are able to be in very cold places because we have the ability to basically take in sunlight energy in the form of food, store it as fat, and then uncouple it or release it as heat to stay warm and regulate our body temperature. It's a pretty cool adaptation that all mammals have. And although some use it more, some use it less because of the evolutionary history of the last several millions of years, like for example, wolves and polar bears are much more recently equipped to utilize these abilities that we all have zebras and lions and people who even humans are are somewhat less equipped. You can even see the difference within human species, like people who live Nordic peoples and Siberian peoples, for example, Inuits are more equipped to burn fat as heat. African or equatorial or tropical peoples are less so even within the last couple hundreds of thousands of years of human migration. So anyway, getting back to light and why this is so relevant is that life utilized at each step of the way, the available energy from the sun to further power and allow for complexity in our biology. So light comes through the atmosphere. There's this whole spectrum of sunlight that's emitted, but only a very small portion of it from infrared to ultraviolet. And in between is red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet, the colors that we know. Uh, These are all the colors and and the wavelengths that are emitted to the earth in tremendous proportions and significant proportions, very small amount of ultraviolet C radiation, very little gamma radiation, unless you go again, higher up like in an airplane. And this is when we're exposed to harmful forms of radiation. If we're in the air for too much, uh, too much time. So anyhow, life utilizes these wavelengths of sunlight to do all sorts of different processes, because at a basic level, Every atom in the universe absorbs and re-emits certain wavelengths of light just based on its nature. So when you make molecules, these molecules based on the combination of atoms also absorb and re-emit different wavelengths and spectra of light. And then when you make biomolecules, so basically molecules in living organisms and proteins and so on, these also typically absorb and re-emit specific wavelengths of light. And so what the hypothesis is of both of myself and of leading experts in the field of light and how it affects the body and basically called photobiology is one name of describing the field is basically that the, what, what drove the complexity of life was the different wavelengths in that are emitted by the sun that basically each of these different wavelengths was able to organize and interact with different biomolecules to basically carry out certain functions. And so it's not really like life had all these different molecules and things occurring, and then sunlight was just able to enhance them. It was like step-by-step light and of the sun, like a sculptor with a blank slate of marble actually 
drove the processes of what was able to happen. So basically our lives today, our biology today is basically a reflection of the spectrum of light that's emitted by the sun. So the protein, there's so many proteins in the body, so many different molecules and, and chemicals and so on, all of which have some relationship with light and many of which have a very deep relationship with light where effectively speaking, another way to think about this is that we have, let's just say we have a hundred things that are occurring in the body. There's a lot more than that, but let's just say there are a hundred. Practically every single one of these functions, every single one of these different uh, reactions and proteins and, and things that are occurring, chemical reactions are enhanced by specific wavelengths of light. So when you give a molecule more energy, if you basically give any molecule more energy in the wavelengths that it specifically absorbs that are specific to it, any reaction that it's taking part in can occur more efficiently and more quickly, just in the same way that if I have more energy, I can get tasks done more quickly. So when we lay out in full spectrum sunlight, we're not just getting a little vitamin D. We're not just getting a little bit of uh, nitric oxide release that makes our blood flow more easily and effectively and everything, or a little bit more dopamine or serotonin or anything like this. And these are some of the bigger things people are familiar with. They're also familiar with mitochondrial optimization from red light therapy, circadian rhythm setting from blue light wavelengths, but effectively we're getting an entire super rich multivitamin in the form of full spectrum sunlight with all these different component wavelengths that are powering a much wider band of reactions in our body than more than likely science is even fully aware of to date. Mm. And if we don't have that, our biology, you can only imagine based on the description I'm giving is functioning at a significantly reduced level because we have all these things, all these processes that are literally like based off of light and shaped off of full spectrum sunlight that are just sitting there. Hey, when am I going to get some love? And they're really just going super slow. I would wager that humans today are functioning often at 10 or 20% capacity of what a, a human being's genetic encoding allows for. Wow. So I think that's a pretty thorough explanation, but I hope that helps. Does that kind of answer your question? Is that clear? Yes, it, yes, it does. It makes very clear how crucial sunlight is to the functioning of our mitochondria, to our overall health and well-being. I also like that you explain to us all the different wavelengths from the blue light to the red and infrared light and how all of these different wavelengths, they all pertain to certain functions have made us it possible for us to develop, to become who we really are. And what I understand is that the way we live today, the way we've created our modern lives today, I like what you said, we're functioning likely at 10 or 20% of our true potential. First of all, I'd like to know from you, you know, what the ideal times are to expose ourselves to full spectrum sunlight. For example, for myself, I'm very Nordic. I'm extremely pale. They used to call me Casper the ghost uh, at school when I was a child. And the other thing I'd like to know is your take on whether you think there's a link between the epidemic of depression, um, for example, that we're seeing today and a host of all other big chronic diseases. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with, there's an analogy I really like to sum up the, the last point about light. I think of the sun as like a painter and 
the rays of light emitted by the sun are the painter's brush and paint in the different and the different colors of the color palette that the painter has are the different wavelengths of light in the spectrum and the painting is, is us and we are essentially a, a it's a we're an ongoing painting an evolving we're a painting that is i'm trying to get the right word that is not stagnant but rather constantly moving let's just say it's constantly shifting in other words we require this continuous application of these different wavelengths of light aka colors of paint from the painter's brush in order to remain colored and to remain functional at our highest level so when we go inside and we are no longer getting those colors which are the wavelengths of light emitted by the sun then we start to become pale, for example, and we start to become less full of life and we start to lack or lose our color in a sense, which is an expression that one could use these lacking in color, but truly it, it is something that's really important for our functioning. So yeah, as far as how can people apply this and, you know, bring it into their lives and get out in the sun, the first thing is to note that we don't have to be in the sun all the time. It's very important to make that clear. Just being outside in nature, just being outdoors, not even in nature necessarily, but just outside in the elements. So what I mean by that is for millions and millions of years of evolution, anything that lived on earth was by definition exposed to the full spectrum of light. Even if you go into a cave, there's maybe still a little light seeping in. If you go deep into a cave, yeah, probably not much light. But besides that, there's still light reaching almost every single nook and cranny of the earth, even the ocean, not quite the ocean depths. But again, that's a different story. As we discussed earlier on, there are organisms that are able to function down there with less light or almost no light and more on the infrared energy and, and more purely chemical based, but everywhere else, especially on the surface of the earth, there's plenty of light. And for humans, especially this is true because we're not living at the ocean depths. So when we started to disconnect from this was when we started first to wear clothing. So clothing was a, a big, uh, I would say, step in the fall of humans from our sort of more enlightened divine nature. And this is documented in a variety of spiritual texts, including the Old Testament Genesis. They describe Adam and Eve who didn't know that they were naked. And then they ate from the forbidden fruit and became aware of their nudity. And then God asked them, who told you you were naked? And so clothes, I think, are a fundamental piece of the fall of humans from our divinity and enlightened nature. And that was one start. And in particularly, what I find really interesting is that there's a lot of research indicating that basically when we expose our reproductive organ 
our reproductive organs, also basically more, more specifically our first energy center or first chakra, as it's called in Sanskrit, which is in sort of a energy and, and the Western medical field will call this woo woo, but that's just because they're lacking in the evidence in that they're able to measure to understand these things that have been known for thousands of years, but basically our body as a being of energy, which we can get into in a little bit, is composed of seven or some say eight primary energy centers, also known as chakras. And these energy centers are responsible for determining what in the body, like how different cells know to become what they are. In other words, in Western medicine, there's no, and this is telling and ironic as to their lack of understanding about life. There's no explanation in Western medical science, none that is sufficient to explain how cells know to become what they become because every single cell in the human body in every organism on earth in complex organisms, cell, every single cell has the same set of genes, except our reproductive cells, which are for, they have half a set of genes. But other than that, all the cells in the body have the exact same set of chromosomes, 23 chromosomes. And so there's, again, there's no explanation as to how do those cells know how to become a nerve cell? How do others know to become a liver cell, a kidney cell, a brain cell, a, a heart cell? There's no explanation for that. It's really amazing when you think about this, a huge gaping hole in biology of which there are many in Western standard biology, reductionist um, biochemistry. And there's a guy named Dr. Robert O. Becker, who basically was researching how, just to put this, I'll keep this one a little bit brief, but basically he's an American scientist in the forties who was a student, a medical student, and was intrigued because he was working in residency during World War II, seeing all these limbs being amputated, and was basically wondering, like, how can a salamander generate, regenerate an entire arm or leg, an entire limb, and a human can't? Why not? There's got to be an explanation that we can measure and understand scientifically, because salamanders can regenerate entire limbs if they're chopped off. Humans can't. Mammals typically can't. So anyway, he started studying and found that he basically found that the factor of healing is it's electrical. It is electricity involved. And then he basically began to document the entire energy system in the body. And so he ultimately was able to show and prove in his book, it's called The Body Electric. It's a really great book. And again, the name's Robert O. Becker, that the body is fundamentally electromagnetic energy-based in nature, and that the camp of scientists who have been arguing for hundreds or even thousands of years that we are based on a vital spark of energy called the vitalists were actually correct in their assertion, but because there was no instrumentation at their time to be able to measure this energy, then they were basically shut down by this other camp of scientists called the mechanists who argue that everything is basically fundamentally just chemical based, which again, doesn't explain some of the biggest questions of life, including how do cells know to become what they become. What he was able to document is there's a governing energy field, which is actually who we are, is the governing energy field of life that, deter that drives what becomes what. So if you look at a human, what is the matter that makes them up? We, we visually observe the matter, but the matter is essentially a hologram, which is directed by a greater energy field. And so there's even, there are even experiments that, for example, a guy, a researcher looks at women who have some sort of a uterine cancer. And basically, the, every single woman had this pattern in her field that was ultimately attributed, he was attributing this uterine cancer to this pattern, this sort of distorted pattern in their energy field that he was measuring. Now, he also looked at other women who 
didn't yet have the cancer manifesting, but they had the same pattern in their field. And every single one of these women ultimately developed this cancer, this particular cancer. So it's in other words to say that it's again, the, the energy field is what governs and drives life. And the matter is the result of the field. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I have a question I'd like to interject with. So talking Please. about this governing energy field of life and talking about seeing the, the distortions in the energy field of these women, did he have a solution or a theory at least on how to fix the distortion? I'm actually not exactly sure about that. I'd have to go back and review exactly what his conclusions were. I don't believe that his understanding was developed enough at the time, because this was several decades ago, as to how they could go about fixing this. But this was what they found, at mm. least at the time. But so this other, so this researcher who I'm referring to, Robert O. Becker, actually, he started to have some theories about the one who authored this book, which kind of shares both his research and these sort of anecdotes of the other findings of these other researchers. But basically, he was able to develop some basic technology to specifically for the purposes of regenerating limbs to stimulate this electrical capacity in humans. And he actually was making some really good progress. They were able to regrow an entire limb on a dog, on in a mammal. The first time it's ever been done. And I'm, to my awareness, maybe the only time it's ever been done. Side note that's very interesting is that Robert O. Becker's lab was shut down because it was part of the Veterans Administration, which is a branch basically of the US military um, for veterans. And or it's just, you know, subset of the US military. And anyhow, his protege, a student of his, who came into his lab several years after he had been working there, was starting to question the health effects of external electromagnetic fields that could potentially affect these newly discovered internal energy systems. And this was things like high voltage transmission lines, microwaves, radar that the Navy was using in large amounts during the Cold War with Soviet Union and so on and so forth. And basically, he found all sorts is his student named Andrew Marino wrote a great book describing his findings called Going Somewhere, Truth About a Life and Science. And basically, because Marino's findings conflicted with the intentions and desires of the US Navy at the time, their lab was basically defunded because they basically found that these non-ionizing fields of radiation that were considered harmless because they were not, they were just that non-ionizing. They were, they're not like gamma rays or x-rays that can directly break apart atoms and cause really serious damage very quickly. They're considered harmless as a result, unless they were, unless there was enough of them like a microwave to actually cook a tissue. But in fact, because of the sensitivity of the energy systems in our body, they found that these still, these fields, even at non-ionizing and even non-thermal, non-cooking levels still had effects on the body in the same way that, you know, just because basically the, the standard that the, the crazy part is that this standard is still in place today with the legislation around cell phones and stuff, that if it doesn't actually cook your tissue, that it's harmless. It would be like saying that if you don't consume enough are you familiar with glyphosate? I assume the toxic. Oh, yeah, pesticide. So yeah. it'd be like saying if you don't consume enough glyphosate to immediately kill you on the spot, it has no effect. That's ex almost exactly what they're saying is if you don't have enough microwave, radio wave radiation to cook your tissue and literally cook it and burn it 
then it has it's no effect. It's impossible and done. End of conversation. It couldn't yeah. possibly have an effect based on everything we know. That is still the standard that's upheld. And that's why 5G technology is allowed to proliferate. Marino fully disproved this, but him and Becker's lab were defunded as a result of being linked with the US military and not going in line with what they wanted to be seeing for their servicemen who needed to use radar and they didn't want to get sued by all the servicemen who were getting cancer, cataracts, and all these other things as a result of radar. They'd rather no one just know. And so anyhow, super powerful stuff. But getting back towards your question, I'm talking about, we're talking about the energy nature of life. We are these beings of light, beings of energy that are governed by light. And so actually, it would be good if we could recall what the question was that you first asked, because that'll bring this back to a full circle. Absolutely. The first question I asked was uh, with regards to exposure to sunlight, when the best times would be. Um, Gotcha. This mm -hmm. is perfect. Yeah, this is perfect. So basically, just to summarize and and then actually give people a, a, a practical answer for that. It's just really important for people to note that we are these energy beings that were governed by light. And, and so going back to this is where we're, where I got into this digression and detailed tangent is when we get some, I was talking about when we get sunlight on our first energy center, which is our first or called first chakra or a perineum, this provides us with a huge amount of energy. And there's this kind of funny meme almost that (laughs) took over the internet. You may have seen a butt sunning or perineum sunning. But the reason it's actually, it works and people feel amazing from this is because it essentially puts basically what's considered like a free source of energy into our biology and into our chakra, into our energy system. And it's very powerful. It's very recharging. So I believe that this, this idea of us wearing clothes is one of the first ways to disconnect us from our divinity. And that's why we, we have all this. There's part of why I think there's all this shame associated if we're, if we were all just walking around naked, like we don't, we're not at a level of consciousness to see our divinity in, in certain respects. And right. so the reason I got into the tangent of, of the energy systems is just because they're going to be p- people who say, oh, the first chakra, the first energy center, that's actually BS. Well, no, again, I was talking about Robert O'Becker because he clearly documented and proved that there is, we are these energetic beings and there is a system of energy. And just to cl- close off that point, what what causes cells to know how to become what they're going to become is the energy field. So where it's basically, again, the field directs a nervous cell to become a nervous cell, nervous system cell as part of a nerve, it directs a cell to become the heart. And so there's these seven basically quote unquote clumps or wheels as they're called in Sanskrit or just energy centers that at the first center, the energy there basically causes and and directs the formation of the reproductive organs. The second energy center directs the production of or the development of the digestive organs. The third energy center directs the development of the kidneys and the adrenal glands, which are our power center. The second center before that is like our safety and digestion and stability and security and family and love. The first center, obviously the reproductive organs is our reproduction. The fourth center is our heart. And that's our sort of life center and life force and the lungs brings in our energy and pumps blood. And it's our connection to the rest of the cosmos in a way. It's very powerful because it's, it's the in-between the top three and the bottom three centers. Then we have the throat, 
which is our communication. We have the sixth center, which is the third eye or the pineal gland, which is also responsible, you know, largely for the formation of the brain. And then the seventh center, which is our crown chakra, which is considered our connection to source and the greater energy of the cosmos. And it's interesting also to note that less developed animals, less developed organisms basically stop at the first three centers. They also have hearts and they also have brains, but they're significantly less developed than the humans, basically heart and especially the throat. No other animals have the level of language that we do to be able to communicate. Dolphins communicate in complex ways, so do birds, so do lots of other animals, but it's, it's not nearly as complex as human communication. And as far as the range of things that can be communicated, uh, and then of course the brain, the humans are, are far superior as far as our intelligence, which is why we're top of the food chain. doesn't mean to say that other animals aren't extremely intelligent. In fact, I think they are often more than we are today, especially because of our de-evolution that we've gone through. Anyway, so going back to safe sun exposure, the one thing to, to what the track I'm going on is the ways we've disconnected from sunlight is going indoors and being behind walls and windows. But first, before that was clothing. So then we built walls, houses and everything. And we basically started to stay inside more. But even until the last 200 years, most people still spent the majority of their time outdoors. Some people would spend more time inside and would be often less healthy as a result, especially in the industrial revolution and the late uh, 17 and especially, yeah, more like the late 1800s, the 1800s and the 17th, I should say the 19th century, they were, people were having huge issues as a result of moving indoors and having less sunlight. Like children were starting to develop huge amounts of rickets in the UK. And they actually found when they looked that the the cause of rickets and the cure for rickets was ultraviolet light from the sun because ultraviolet light, again, as far as us using these wavelengths of the sun to do different awesome functions in the body is that it allows us to make this vitamin D, which allows us to get calcium into our bones and develop our bones. And so children who didn't have any exposure to the sun or didn't have any vitamin D. Real quick yeah. to interject um, because it may not be very well known today, but rickets is actually a type of softening and weakening of the bones in children. And it can be devastating. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a huge issue. And similarly, there were people getting a lot of tuberculosis, um, but specifically lupus vulgaris. So tuberculosis of the skin in Europe, even in the early late 1800s, early 1900s. And again, some very intelligent researchers particularly a Danish guy named Niels Finsen won the Nobel prize in 1904 for discovering that you could use ultraviolet light from the sun to kill the bacteria on the skin responsible for causing lupus, which as far as I would say, it means that the deficiency in the light in the first place was what allowed this bacteria to grow and basically cause these problems for, for people. So anyhow, at a high level, we can see how this disconnect from the sun has caused a lot of different issues for the body. What we need to do as far as actually getting back outside is just remove clothing when possible. So even just take your shirt off, wear shorts and lay in the sun. Ideally, people would get out in the sun naked where possible. You don't have to, but I recommend it if possible because it is, and this is almost considered woo-woo, but again, there's these people called the naturists or in Germany, you're probably familiar with the FKK who are yeah. swear by nude beaches and nude sunbathing because they understand the sort of divine 
power of us being able to get sun on our full body. So and I'm there's huge, something yeah. that's tied to it as well. You mentioned it before, the shame that is attached to not wearing clothing. The naturalists have a shame-free relationship to their body and the body, the naked human body is not marginalized in the sense where it's viewed as purely sexual. A lot of the shame with the naked human body comes from us connecting a naked human body only with sex, which is funny because at the same time, we're a completely oversexed society. And on the other side, we're a completely sexually repressed society that fails to see its own divinity and also how that connects to sex. It's a very good point. Yeah. So I, and I imagine like a future world where people are like totally naturists, nudists. And, but again, even nudists is like a marginalizing term. It's really just people who believe in um, ourselves really as humans. Anyhow, so this is a, a super uh, fascinating kind of subject. So as far as people actually getting in the sun, let's just make this easy. We don't want to be behind glass because glass and windows filter out full spectrum sunlight they filter out some of the key components the some of the beneficial ultraviolet wavelengths and a lot of the oftentimes very beneficial red and near infrared wavelengths are filtered out by windows because they're trying to reduce the amount of heat that gets into a building to make it require less air conditioning so therefore it's quote unquote more energy efficient what they don't know is that they're depriving by blocking out this infrared to save on heat or air conditioning costs is they're depriving all the organisms, the humans inside of that building behind that glass of their life force, the infrared near infrared light that powers our mitochondria powers, our biology causing more oxidative, basically damage and stress in our mitochondria and in our cells and leading to an accelerated aging, decreased mental function, decreased productivity, and, and basically decreased in overall health function and so on. This is one of the reasons why raw optics screen lenses or previously called day lenses that we make at my company are so useful because when you're in a situation where you don't have the full spectrum of sunlight, because you have to be behind closed windows and behind glass and exposed to artificial light sources, they're able to filter out the blue light, which in the absence of the near infrared light becomes very stressful and harmful to the cells. And so this is something I made so that people can use them when they're indoors on screens all day and they're be, have to be in an office or in a grocery store or a, a hospital where there's just bright fluorescent and LED lighting or screens all around all day to reduce the risks and the stress that's being basically placed onto these cells by being in this a poorly lit environment, deficient in sunlight. It doesn't solve the issue, the product, it, the glasses, they don't solve the issue. People still need to get outside. And I always tell people this, but they're really helpful. So anyhow, as far as times of sunbathing, let's just get into that. So basically what I would recommend people do is go outside first thing in the morning and basically watch the sunrise or get as close to watching the sunrise as possible. So there's this ancient practice of sun gazing, which people would do, which was known to elevate consciousness, improve wellness, improve connection to source and God and divinity, just by staring into the sun directly for the 15 to 20 minutes after it comes over the horizon. And this would be, this could be done at sunrise or sunset. It just requires a clean horizon, whether it's a lake, a river, being on a hill so you can see over the trees, or if you're in a desert, it's easier, obviously, because there are no trees. 
But this is something that I, I really recommend for those who really want to get a quick reset in their circadian rhythm. And it's a key part of my light diet protocol for people who want to get started on this stuff. I actually put out a course recently, basically just describing all of the practical, actionable takeaways people can get from this information to apply to their life uh, quickly. It's called the light diet course, and it's on my website, raoptics.com, where we also have the glasses products that I mentioned. But anyhow, so people should watch the sunrise as close as they can as when it comes up. And that's going to help set our body's circadian rhythm. So that's one. The other thing that's the counter to that is watching the sun set. So actually, if you can, being outside when the sun is going down in the evening and getting that stimulus of nighttime and darkness. And then once the sun has gone down, blocking blue light, because blue light from basically any white light source, blue light's a component of that white light, it basically stimulates the brain and activates the nervous system to produce our stress hormones and stop the production of our sleep hormones, melatonin. Another example where matter is controlled by the field, by the energy, the light is what's governing the chemistry inside our body. And so when we get that, when we block the blue light with, for example, blue light blocking glasses, which is again, another product that I make, we have these lenses for day. I make them all for this reason, because they're very useful for these purposes. But basically we have the, the ones I mentioned for day, these screen lenses, then we have a different product for night called sleep lenses, which basically when the sun goes down, if, if we have to be exposed to artificial lights, which most of us do, unless we've set it up where we're going to not have any lights on in our house, we're going to only use candles, or we're going to use red lights, or we're going to use fire. But if that's not the case, then we're going to be exposed to these light sources that can disrupt our circadian rhythm. So put these lenses on and then we're good. Again, people don't need the products. People can just go and use only candles at their house. But then if you go out, you're going to be exposed to light. So I use these glasses every night because it really does help. And a lot of the customers who purchase them report that they start to crave them and they start to become sensitive. They realize how sensitive we are to having bright light at night. It throws off our natural relaxation that occurs in the evening. It's a really cool thing that people can do. And that's just, those are just two pieces of, of light. This is really setting our circadian rhythm, getting the morning light for even just at the minimum five to 10 minutes, but ideally multiple hours. Like I'm sitting outside where I'm doing this podcast. I'm not in the direct sunlight. It's actually a little bit overcast today, but I'm still getting the full spectrum of light because I'm outdoors and I'm not behind a window. And thankfully, I'm not getting chewed up by mosquitoes today. I'm very fortunate. On the other hand, at night, we also want to, again, like I said, see the sunset and just even 10 to 20 minutes around sunset would be really good, but the more, the better. And it's, if, if you can get out and actually see a good sunset, it's something where people typically tend to find themselves enjoying it for at least a half hour to an hour. Cause it's just such an enjoyable uh, thing to behold. So anyway, as far as then the other time to get sun, not just setting our circadian rhythm and our body's timing, I recommend for really charging up the body, the best time to get light in is in the middle of the day as well. So when the sun is the highest in the sky in the middle of the day, it, it is producing, we're able to produce the most vitamin D because there's the most ultraviolet light passing through the atmosphere. The higher the sun is in the sky, the less atmosphere that's filtering it and therefore the more vitamin D we can make. So the closest to the middle of the day, and it depends where we are. You can just look up, people can Google search solar noon where they live. And typically one to two hours before and one to two hours after the sun will be quite strong in the summer, in the winter, it's a shorter window that the sun's very strong. But so I really recommend that people basically go ahead and get out for in the beginning, starting with maybe just five minutes 
and then building up by two to three minutes each day. And people can even do five minutes on each side of their body. Now, for someone who's very pale, as you mentioned yourself, I would even consider with midday sun starting with one minute on each side or even 30 seconds just to get your body warmed up. And I would make sure you're doing that in conjunction with some early morning and late afternoon sunlight exposure, ideally not just on your eyes, but also on your skin where possible, because the early morning sun, especially kind of conditions and prepares the body for exposure throughout the rest of the day. So mm-hmm. those are the key things, morning, late afternoon, and midday. And for people who the, the time that needs to be dosed the most carefully is the middle of the day. Cause that's when you can burn and have the damaging effects of sunlight. If you get too much, especially if you have light pale skin. So again, like the, the heliotherapists who are these doctors in Switzerland in the early 1900s, inspired by the guy who made the discovery and won the Nobel prize about tuberculosis of the skin being cured by ultraviolet light. They basically would take their patients put them in these clinics on the side of the mountains in the Alps, in the Swiss Alps, and roll them out into the sun. And they would start by just putting their feet for a few minutes. And then they would roll out, for example, just one minute on the feet, and then they would roll them back into the shade. And the next day they would do a minute on the feet and then another minute on the lower leg. So the feet got a total of two minutes and the lower leg then got a minute. And then they would do, they would continue. So they would put one minute on the feet and the lower legs, and then another minute on the the upper leg. And so they would just progressively build it up the body each day, adding a minute to each part of the body so that the lowest part where they started the feet would then have three minutes on the third day and, and so on and so forth. And eventually they'd have the whole body in the sun for five, 10, or even 15 minutes on each side. So that's the most conservative approach to sunbathing. And I, I, again, rather than going piece by piece, just, I would say, go out and put the whole body out for two to three minutes to start, um, unless someone's really pale, then maybe one to two minutes and build that up. And eventually when people get healthy and get to a really good level where they can tan without burning, which is a good indicator of health. And they said, the deeper the tan, the better the cure from their research. So people who were able to tan really well showed very deep health in their body and that they were healing. And so, and things, for example, that could harm that could be like, for example, poor diet or consumption of alcohol or these kinds of things. But this is relevant for both of us because we both have a Nordic slash Northern European ancestry, like the, the healthiest Nordic and Northern Europeans who have light skin can still get a very nice brown tan when they get in the sun. And those who have some, something still to overcome health-wise have a hard time tanning. And that was me when I got into this. So I made a lot of modifications with the water I was drinking, the food I was eating, all these different types of things. Anyhow, um, once someone's really tanned up and healthy, they could theoretically, and not even theoretically, but in practice, stay in the midday sun for even hours. But again, people have to use their own judgment, not burn and be discerning and be careful. For many people in the middle of the day, especially in the summer, 20 minutes on each side of the body could be more than enough, even 10 to 15. That's typically what I do. I'm in Costa Rica. The sun's very strong here. So in the middle, when it's just in the middle of the day, I typically would stay for 10 to 15 minutes on each side of my body at the most. And if I'm in a place like the mountains in Costa Rica, where the air is a little cooler, I can actually tolerate more light because my skin is cooler, which is very nice. And it feels amazing. And I sleep like a baby when I do that, especially in a cool place. And so then I might stay for 30 minutes, but if, if I get a little burnt, then I know I have to dial it back. 
So the other thing I would say is in the morning and the afternoon light, I describe just the minimum, which is just getting the exposure to set the body's circadian rhythm. For people who really want to go all in, I would recommend getting 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes in the morning or even more because for the first, depending on where you are on earth again, because it varies drastically, but the first 30 minutes to one hour to two to three hours of light in the day is a lot weaker than the rest, than the middle of the day. Now in Costa Rica or tropical or equatorial places, it's only maybe the first 30 minutes or hour, the sun is weaker and you can basically get as much of that as you want because there's very little ultraviolet. Even the palest person could get a lot of that sun, which is exactly what I would recommend to start. And so that's a really good idea. Now that's again, on the equator, it'd be maybe 30 minutes to an hour tops because the sun gets so strong so quickly because it goes straight up. Whereas if you're in the temperate zones, north or south of the tropics. In the summer, again, it's still pretty similar. The sun goes up pretty quickly. So the window might not just be 30 minutes or an hour. It might be an hour and a half to two hours, but then it's going to be pretty strong two hours after sunrise in the summer. But in the spring and the fall, and even in the winter, you could, in the winter, you could basically stay out in the sun almost all day without burning in most places in North America and, and Europe. But for even for pale, for the palest people, but then, yeah, so it's just a matter of dosing it and using your judgment. But, but I recommend in general, someone who's just getting started, if you can spend an hour or 30 minutes to an hour in the morning sun, or even more early morning, very good for the body. And at late afternoon as well, very good for the body, less risk of burning, less risk of any damage, but for the minimum effective dose, least amount of time, most effect the middle of the day is good, but that's when you have to be careful with the dosing time. So this is probably like one of the most thorough explanations I've given of sunlight dosing time and, and other than what's in the light diet course. So this should be really useful for people to get started. And the other thing is not to wear sunscreen and sunglasses ever or, or very rarely. So sunscreen is full of toxic chemicals that become even more toxic when they're irradiated with ultraviolet light from the sun and they're absorbed into our bloodstream. So it's really not a good situation. And so got to stay away from that, wear a hat and wear uh, a shirt when if you still need to be outside and you've reached your maximum sun dose, there's no advantage to laying in the sun with, without clothing on if you've already overdone your exposure limit and putting on sunscreen just makes it worse. Uh, sunglasses are also harmful for a number of reasons, because one of which is that they distort the spectrum. So they don't just equally reduce the amount of light coming in. That would be less of an issue. They actually cut out entire portions of the light that have been considered or deemed harmful by governments and sunscreen and pharmaceutical and dermatological organizations, which is the ultraviolet component, which is really not based on sound evidence. So anyway, they block out the ultraviolet radiation and then but in doing so, they actually affect the, the eye's natural pupillary contraction response to sunlight. So what that basically means is that when they're blocking that light, the pupil cannot contract the way it's designed to, and therefore there's still a lot of high energy blue light passing through sunlight, sunglasses typically, and the rest of the wavelengths still in high intensities. And this high energy blue that's still passing through the lenses can then become extremely damaging because the pupil wasn't stimulated to get smaller. Now it's big and still wide and open more than it was before. And there's a huge amount of high energy blue coming through, damaging effectively the retina and causing problems in the eye. So that is a huge issue with sunglasses. And I do mm. not, it is worse to wear sunglasses in strong sunlight than it is in weak sunlight based on what I'm sharing. If you can I'm imagine. really glad you bring this up. This is tons of really good advice, actionable advice, and all of it is easy to do and it's for free. I love that you brought up the fact that slathering on sunscreen can be extremely detrimental because think about these chemicals 
on your skin and then cooking <laughs> under yeah. especially with intense sunlight so yeah thank you for this thorough and and really also well researched and founded advice that's awesome yeah of course may i may i share one other thing about sunglasses absolutely so the other thing about sunglasses is that there's a very good study that shows that the stimulus so i'll step back so in order to protect our body from sunlight we make a chemical or a protein pigment called melanin, which people are very familiar with because the more melanin you have, the darker your skin is, the darker your eyes are, the darker your hair is, and so on and so forth. So it's a very well-known uh, chemical. What's not so well-known about it is it's magic, is that really, in a sense, it's like magic because melanin takes light energy and basically uses it to uh, slow, it basically slows it down into infrared light energy. And basically this infrared light causes water to become structured. And when water is structured, what it's basically doing is breaking apart from H2O. So it's basically breaking apart into an OH group and an O, yeah, H2O and an H, a hydrogen. And basically these hydrogens um, or the o, these OH groups of water basically latch onto this liquid crystalline superconducting lattice of energy, which is also known as fourth phase or structured water. And there's a great book on this by a guy named Gerald Pollack out of the University of Washington called The Fourth Phase of Water. And then there's another really good, great book called Melanin, the Master Molecule by a guy named Arturo Solis Herrera, who's a Mexican researcher, basically showing how light energy through melanin and through other parts, other surfaces and membranes in the body is turned into through melanin into something that we can use to basically have free energy in our body. But just getting to the point about sunglasses is the stimulus for our body to make more of this melanin is as is often the case, the light that passes through the eye, because the eye is the master sensor of the environment and of light in from a physical perspective, from a energetic perspective, it's more the the pineal gland, which is called often the third eye, or some would call it the first eye, because that's really like the first eye more than third. But so the eyes sense the amount of light in the environment, if it's summer or if it's winter. And then as, as a result, we make more melanin in when there's a lot of ultraviolet radiation around, especially ultraviolet B radiation. Sunglasses block this wavelength of light and this signal to the brain to make more melanin. So basically wearing sunglasses is blocking the body's natural production of the protein and pigment that protects us from excess sunlight. Based on this evidence, one could say that wearing sunglasses increases one's risk of sunburning and skin cancer because it's blocking the stimulus for the production of our own natural protective mechanisms. So it's really, it is that bad. So I'm glad it is not a good look. Again, I think that the most enlightened, I'll just make the caveat is the most enlightened spiritual masters. There are quite a, a few, like I think of, for example, Joe Dispenza, who's a great teacher of mine and a guy named Sad Guru, who you may be familiar with from India. Yeah. He, they both wear sunglasses actually more than I would like to see. But I, I do believe that as with all of these things, the most realized, enlightened and that's not a, that's not a pun enlightened. It's actually literally accurate. The most enlightened beings can get away with anything. They can kind of, they can wear sunglasses and they're going to be fine. But for most people who are more subject to the laws of the physical world, these are very important things to, to stay aware of. So yeah, those are like 
really good sun application tricks. And I'm so glad you asked that question. I think that, like you said, these are super practical takeaways and I appreciate you being so, um, so great at holding the space to, to share this information and being so uh, open and receptive. Cause I, I haven't had many podcast hosts actually who are like combative. Thankfully, I'm not invited by people who want to just argue, but it can definitely be a very touchy subject because when people believe what they believe about the sun and about light, it's like hard to convince, it's hard to convince. It's almost impossible to change someone's mind when they don't want it to be changed. Of course, a lot of that has to do with the conditioning that we've had for many decades. And also the brain often is unwilling to change. I love to learn from people. I have said before, I consider myself a, a sponge. It's my favorite thing to do. And I feel like I am a better person every time I talk to someone who is as passionate as you are and who has a mission like you have a mission. I, I really liked what you just said about the truly enlightened beings can get away with a lot. There's a belief I've held that all the great teachers, uh, if you look back in, in history, they all seem to have one or the other small, let's call it vice for a lack of a better world. I do feel that these types of things often tether these spirits to the earth without those small vices, they would probably just float off. <laughs> I would the, think so. Into yeah. the universe instead of yeah, teaching exactly. us. So, yes. With regards to obviously one of your main practices in life that has been very beneficial for your all over well being is sunlight. And another, of course, is also the use of when you can't be completely in a natural environment the uh, blue blocking glasses. And, and I know you've developed yours from raw optics really based on science. There's a lot of blo blocking glasses on the market that aren't blocking the right wavelengths. And I've heard rave reviews about your glasses from friends in the biohacking and wellness circle. So these are really important practices. Do you have some other practices that you could share with our audience today, it's a question I ask every guest that have profoundly affected you spiritually, mentally, or physically in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. Most recently, having gotten into this stuff when I was just beginning high school and growing up and finding my way and then graduating school, high school, finishing uh, with that, and then starting this business, Raw, currently Raw Optics, but soon to be just Raw because it sounds a lot cooler in my opinion, but, and it's named of course, after the Egyptian God of the sun, I'm sure you're familiar with, yeah. and there's a lot of sort of mythology and cool stuff associated with raw, which a lot of which I haven't even fully tapped into. There's so much there, but there's all these really cool books, like texts that are considered to have just been channeled by raw, like the law of one and all these other things that I'm excited to actually learn more and more about. Cause it was just an intuitive thing why I picked this name. But anyhow, started raw, and then I got really deep into just business, so just trying to make things happen as what Joe Dispenza calls matter to matter. So instead of using energy to change matter, which is the most effective way to do it, I was trying to do everything matter to matter, which means you have to trudge through the mud of the world and go through all the hard stuff versus just changing the energy first and then the matter follows as we described with the body. That's what I was doing for several, the last several years because I didn't know any better. And I just thought that's how one had to do it to succeed. And of course, faced many challenges, but also had many great successes and met with many amazing people. And all the while I was making these 
glasses as my livelihood and my business because I knew it was an important thing. But there's so much more that I wanted to do that I felt like I wasn't tapping into because I got really caught up in the, the business type of stuff and so on. And when people would ask me, a couple friends of mine, I was living abroad actually when I was a junior in high school, when I was 16 uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina near basically in central Europe, South, Southeastern yeah. Europe, actually, and really beautiful country with amazing people. So they're very interesting and they, lots of hardships there with the war recently and so on. But I, I remember being with some friends and they were saying, I, I was telling one of my friends from school there after visiting a couple of years later, after having finished telling his older brother, they were all asking me all kinds of questions. Cause I was like the odd American who they've never met an American before. And they're like, what do you, what's your story, this and that. And I told them the whole story and about challenges and overcoming so much of my health, so many of my health issues and, and using light. And then he was like, what do I do? Like, how do I do it? How do I like, tell me, what do I do? And it just, it sent me after that day, this was in like the summer of 2018, I believe it just sent me into a path of, whoa, I really need to take this and turn it into something that anyone can utilize because it's so far from what, from the consciousness and awareness of the mainstream and the majority of people. So the light diet course, I'm so proud to have launched just a few weeks ago, because it's really the first thing where someone doesn't have to go out and listen to this podcast and every other podcast I've done. I still recommend, and I'm going to share this widely because this has been a really great conversation. But anyway, in that course, people can just get the key pieces in one place, which I'm really grateful for that that was able to come to fruition. But anyhow, the missing step, there was many steps I had learned about from different researchers and bloggers, a couple of people in particular who I really respect and admire, who put a lot of these pieces together and tasked me with going out and sharing this information with a broader audience and you know, getting the message out there without diluting it, without changing it, just really keeping true to the principles, which is what I'm trying to do to the best of my ability. But there was one missing piece that I couldn't quite figure out. And it was reflecting in my own life. Like I was struggling and I was like, I'm sure I've overcome a lot of health challenges, but I'm still struggling mentally. And that of course affects the physical body as well, to a certain degree, to a large degree. And I was like, there must be something in this whole light diet, in this whole theory or thesis that's missing. There's got to be something because I can't, have, I don't have it all figured out. I still don't today. What was missing, I think, was the spiritual component. Ultimately, I don't even think I know that was what was missing. And so at one point, the final step that I added to the light diet protocol, which is eight simple steps, and it's going to change and evolve over time. But as it stands, it's eight simple steps people can do. The last one is cultivate your inner light because we could have everything right from the external light, from getting sunlight at the right times of day and charging up and even eating the right foods and avoiding the chemicals and avoiding electromagnetic radiation and drinking the right water and going barefoot on the earth and eating seasonally and the whole thing. And also blocking blue light and blocking harmful light and all these things. You could have all that and still be really struggling, of course, if we have these limiting emotional beliefs and we're being governed and guided by past traumas. And I didn't know that. So I was just continuing to live my day to day and my future as a reflection of the emotions and memories of the past, which is this is language that I've learned from Dr. Joe Dispenza to explain these ideas. And so I started, I had been exposed to Ram Das at some point, which was a really eye opening experience, but I kind of just couldn't figure out how to reconcile that greater level of awareness with my daily life. So I shelved it for several years. That was when I was 16. But then I started more recently in the last year and a half, really digging into the work of, again, people like Joe Dispenza, because he's, I'd say, one of the main guys explaining the Eastern wisdom and meditation with science through really deep scientific uh, inquiry and, and research and knowledge, but then also looking into 
other people like Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote the autobiography of a yogi and brought basically yoga and especially Kriya yoga and meditation to the West in a big way. And that for me was the missing piece and is the piece that I'm now most fully enveloped in applying in my own life and attempting to ultimately, I, I, I believe it's what everyone is seeking for, but doesn't know that they're seeking for the level of wholeness and fulfillment that can come with reconnecting to our maker or our creator or just divinity or oneness maybe is or pure love is another way to put it. So that is the thing that is most benefiting me and inspiring me. And that's basically just a practice of meditation. And, and again, right now, as I mentioned, I'm pursuing pretty thoroughly Dr. Joe Dispenza's way of explaining and teaching it. Cause I know he's done an amazing job over the last 30 years since he's been doing this, taking the, the deepest Eastern understanding of the meditative practice and explaining it and teaching it in a very scientific approach where people can get really huge results. I don't, there's not anything wrong with any form of meditation. I think it's probably all really beneficial, like mindfulness meditations, transcendental meditations and all this, but he figured out a, a formula that really works so much so that it is week-long in-person events, which I've been going to on repeat to keep steeping myself in this knowledge and connecting with him and his team as well and things like this is this, there are people there who are literally healing from like diseases. Like they've been paralyzed you know, people with multiple sclerosis who have been in wheelchairs for 10 years who are walking, even swimming laps in the pool after one week of overcoming their old selves and the limiting emotional beliefs that are keeping them in the past and keeping their matter and their body stuck in a pattern uh, that can be changed. If they change the energy, people who are veterans who are, have been in wheelchairs for years, like literally running down the beach after a, a, a true healing, like biblical healing kind of story. So it's amazing. And I recommend if anyone's interested and called to that sort of practice, highly recommend that. And for those who are most open-minded, I've been recently reading the autobiography of a yogi that I mentioned from Yogananda, who I'm imagining you're familiar with. Yeah. And I think it's uh, something that for those who are really open, who might be listening to this, that's even like the next level in a sense, the path of Kriya yoga, because Joe Dispenza is great for people who really want the science and need the science and want the results. But if someone just believes it already, they already have the faith and they're open to more what, what many would consider woo woo miracles and crazy things, then then just, I would say, just go straight to the, uh, the Easterners who have been doing it for thousands of years and Yogananda being the, he's, he was like their delegate that they sent over the masters basically sent to the West. So his book's really uh, amazing and great for people. But anyway, thanks for asking that question, because I think that's the, the way to tie everything in a bow. Absolutely. And I will make sure to put all these resources you mentioned in the show notes. And I love that, uh, what you said about cultivating your inner light as well, and finding back to a connection to the divine, however, you may see this or also define this. People who want to learn more about you, Matt, connect with you. Where can they do So people can go to my Instagram, which is The Light Diet. So The Light Diet. And that's also the name of the protocol that I've basically put together to explain these relatively ancient principles in a simple way that people can apply today in a Western world. And people can go to our website, which is currently rawoptics.com. That's raoptics.com, where we sell our products, the blue light blocking glasses, 
as well as uh, the Light Diet course, and potentially soon to be some other products like red light therapy panels, devices, and potentially other lighting related and other health related products that are relevant to the application of the light diet over the next couple of months and years. And as I said, I'm very excited to adjust our the name and the branding to raw so that it's more generally encompassing all of the education, not just the optics, which are the uh, the glasses where we've started. And yeah, people can send me a message on Instagram in the last month or two. I got really good at responding to all of my DMS. So if anyone wants to message me, I will get back to you and I'd be, I'd love to hear from people. Thank you so much. Wonderful. And thank you for this truly light filled in conversation, lots of fascinating stuff. I'm going to look deep into some of the people and that you mentioned. It really tickled my brain. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say you're an amazing host and you're a, you have phenomenal questions and you just do the best job at holding the space because I feel like personally, this is probably to me, the best podcast interview I've ever done. Like just as far as the relevance of the questions and the application to people's lives and the you know specificity and how to actually apply these principles to one's life at the lowest hanging fruit level. So I'm super grateful for this opportunity to do this with you. And I'm going to share it far and wide. You humble me and you're most kind. You put a big smile in my face and my heart. I am glad you enjoyed this, this session as much as I did. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 